Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we're featuring a Portland Book Festival event with two prominent young adult novelists whose work appeals to anyone who is or ever has been a teenager. Ellen Hagen's novel and verse, Don't Call Me a Hurricane, explores the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy on a New Jersey Shore community through the perspective of Eliza, who is fighting to protect her home from development while navigating the lingering trauma of the storm and the climate crisis, plus the crisis of a crush on her should-be enemy, a rich summer tourist. And in Meet Me in Mumbai, Sabina Khan interweaves the stories of Aisha, who finds herself 18 years old, far from her home in India, in love for the first time, and pregnant and facing a huge decision. 17 years later, Aisha's daughter Mira is searching for information about her history when she finds a box of letters from her birth mother. Mira yearns for more connection to her Indian heritage, but must decide if she's ready to learn the whole truth about her past. Both novels feature young characters making big decisions and grappling with the consequences of their choices, as well as the aftermath of the world they are born into as they find their way. The past is present in both storylines in ways that ring true for readers of all ages. Our moderator is Portland writer and editor Megan Savage, who will introduce first Ellen Hagen, who reads from Don't Call Me a Hurricane, then Sabina Khan with Meet Me in Mumbai. Ellen Hagen is a writer, performer, and educator. She is the author of Reckless Glorious Girl and the co-author with Renee Watson of Watch Us Rise. Her poetry collections include Blooming Fiascos, Hemisphere, and Crowned. Her work can be found in ESPN Magazine, She Walks in Beauty, and Southern Sin. Ellen is the director of the poetry and theater departments at the Dream Yard Project and directs their international poetry exchange program with Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines. She co-leads the Alice Hoffman Young Writers Retreat at Adelphi University, raised in Kentucky, she now lives in New York City with her family, and her most recent book that she'll be talking about today is Don't Call Me a Hurricane. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to be in this space, this beautiful space with you all uh, this, this afternoon, almost afternoon now. I'm gonna share a little bit from Don't Call Me a Hurricane. This is a book that focuses on Eliza Marino. She's our protagonist. Her family and all of her friends have lived through a hurricane that happened on their small island, Long Beach Island, New Jersey is where it's set. And the book is interspersed with flashbacks from the hurricane. The family nearly lost everything. So this cohort of friends and, and family are figuring out how to rise up, how to speak back about climate change. So I always think of it's a book about friendship, about, about young people figuring out where their voices are, how to share their voices. There's also a love story because as, as we're all dealing with multiple things, Eliza is also dealing with first love and a, a, a young tourist who's coming into the community and is part of the overdevelopment that is happening that's ramping up the climate the climate change. And so it's a book, I, I think about the island, about, about forgiveness, about learning to, to use your voice. So I'm gonna read a little bit, a few just poems. It's also told in verse. The first one is, we ride wave after wave. Isa and I have been boogie boarding and body surfing and surfing since we were born. Water babies, they called us. Swimming from the time we arrived, both of us at ease in the ocean. Learned it from our moms, who grew up on this same small island, knowing each other, sisters. Yara and Nina, they grew up on Essex Street, in and out of each other's houses, grew up loving salt water and sand, grew up cooking, eating, laughing, and loving the tides. Yara bringing her roots from Puerto Rico and my mom bringing hers from Italy. Their cultures laying the groundwork 
Flavors intertwined, so their kitchens create fireworks. Those skills and that power and all that electricity turning into crabs and cakes. Their seafood shack that served the whole island before the storm and has been slowly starting to build back up after. The two of them are our models and guides. That's how we came to be. Raised together, crew, squad, crowd, team, troop, band, company, herd. Not family by blood, but family by history, family by memory, and what we hold on to, and what we carry with us, and what we owe the ocean, and all that it has carried for us. Been learning how to honor and respect this haven, this shelter, our sanctuary from the start. So this book, I, I always think about the, the powerful women in the book and, and their mothers who are, are having their own business and thinking about what is at stake. And so it's also, as I said, set in New Jersey and I feel, I'm from Kentucky, and so I grew, grew up summers in New Jersey and I feel like both of those spaces, there's a lot of stereotypes and a lot of misconceptions about those places. So this is a, a poem about that. The Jersey Shore, according to us, is everything we love it is sunshine and sea, all salt water and seashells, the shoreline and sunsets sinking into the bay and rising over the ocean. It is surfboards floating on Holyoke Avenue and kids learning to skimboard in the shallow water, riding waves from the time the lifeguards arrive until they pack it up each night and afterward building sandcastles that topple and fade, digging holes enough to bury ourselves up to our necks and then breaking free. The ice cream truck that rips down Center Ave and the Ferris wheel that reaches up to the sky at Fantasy Island. The bumper cars and dragon roller coaster we ride dozens of times on pay one price Friday nights. Shopping at Faria's pizza slices from Bay Village and Swedish fish from the ship's wheel in Harvey Cedars. It's cheese steaks with barbecue and wing night at the chicken or the egg, but no one calls it that. So it's wing night at the Chegg and everyone is there. The kids you grew up with and the ones you love, ones you can't stand. Because home is some of the time complicated. It's paddleboarding and afternoon kayaking off the end of the island in Holgate. It's surfing, skateboarding, walking, running, and riding bikes with no shoes on. Your feet getting tough and rugged enough to get through anything. Feeling free and loose, it's drifting and floating and almost sinking, but someone pulling you up just in time. This is the place we all grew up and grew into who we are. It's locals and tourists, it's born here and just visiting. And for those of us who were born right here in Long Beach Island, New Jersey, this place is ours. We call it home. And I'll, I'll close with uh, a, a tiny one, uh, actually not a tiny one, but it's after the hurricane, a one that, that speaks to a little bit of, of what they dealt with after, after the hurricane. After the hurricane, the house felt abandoned. Everything washed away, lost in the waves, all of our books and treasures, my old journals and seashells gone. Photographs and albums, cards and memories, all that we held so close, let go and left behind. The whole block said goodbye to their shared history, waved it away. After the hurricane, the whole street changed. One house after the other, slow at first, but now, years later, we are one of the only ones to stay put. Our house looks like a storm itself, all rambling with additions and extra around the edges, new floors, but not fancy wood ones. We built up like they told us to, like they forced us to. If we didn't raise our house, the ocean or the price of inflated insurance would take us down for sure. So we lifted it up and away from the ground and the greedy, greedy sea and the greedy, greedy insurance agencies. Now we kids sleep huddled in the attic, which has an exit to the roof, the only place I feel like I can be myself. Away from the ramble, the chaos. Now home feels unpredictable with million-dollar beach and bayfront properties popping up all around us, seeming to make fun of where we live just by being built up beside us. They mock us. Rising up, they look down on us from above. Thank you. Thank you. That was beautiful. Sabina Khan is the author of the upcoming YA novel, Meet Me in Mumbai as well as Zara Hussain is here, and the love and lies of Rukshana Ali. 
She is an educational consultant and a karaoke enthusiast. <laughs> After living in Germany, Bangladesh, Macau, Illinois, and Texas, she has finally settled down in beautiful British Columbia, Canada with her husband, two daughters, and the best puppy in the world, which maybe I'll fight you about. <laughs> Everyone says that. Thank you, Sabina. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I'm so thrilled to be here again. I was here in 2019. Um, and this is just a beautiful venue to talk about books. So, um, Meet Me in Mumbai is a story told in two parts. Uh, the first part is the story of Aisha, uh, who at 17 finds herself pregnant and alone and having to make very difficult decisions. Uh, the second part is set uh, about 18 years later when uh, her daughter uh, is eight, almost 18 and trying to figure out where she belongs, you know, what her place is in the world. And um, this was really something that I wanted to kind of convey how lonely it can be when you're, when Aisha comes to the U.S. as a very young, as a 17-year-old, um, she's all alone and she's having to make, you know, these very difficult decisions. So she's also, before that happened, she's also longing to make a connection with someone and she finds this boy and falls in love with him and then ends up having to make these hard decisions on her own. And Mira, 18 years later, even though she has a great childhood, but she feels often feels out of place um, in, you know, surrounded by people who don't look like her. And she's just trying to figure out where she comes from and she's trying to connect with her roots. And she actually finds a box of letters from her birth mother, which um, basically kind of start her journey to discovering uh, where she comes from and her background. So I'm going to read a little section from each part. My water breaks right in the middle of the produce aisle at Kroger. Given how the last year has gone for me, this shouldn't surprise me one bit. I've been cramping a lot for the last few days, but at my weekly checkup, Dr. Vasquez said they were just Braxton Hicks contractions. Apparently, even my uterus likes to mess with me. Since I couldn't get comfortable in any position, no matter how many ways I tried to contort my very unwieldy body, I decided to walk around the grocery store. So here I am by the mangoes and papayas with wetness trickling down my legs and a sharp contraction leaving me bent over the fruit like I'm the most diligent food inspector in town. <laughs> I pull out my phone and speed dial Mel and Sam. They pick up at the first ring. Aisha, thank God you called, we've been so worried. Sam sounds out of breath as if she's been running. Sam and Mel are the uh, parents who will adopt her child and she's been staying with them uh, until she goes into labor because she's, she's had to keep this whole pregnancy a secret from her family and so um, they're basically taking care of her. It's time, I say, the pain constricting my throat. I need to get to the hospital. We'll be right there, Sam says. Ask her where she is, Mel says in the background. I give them my location and 10 minutes later, they're rushing through the automatic sliding doors. As Sam and Mel, Mel help, are helping me walk from the produce section of their car, I flag down one of the people in the green aprons and point apologetically at the puddle on the floor. This is basically the moment, obviously just before she's giving birth, and um, I wanted to read a section from Mira's part where she is still kind of, you know, conflicted and trying to figure out her background. That night, I have a dream. I'm standing on an empty road. There's no one there, and I'm tired and scared, but not a single car comes by. Finally, I see a woman in the distance. She walks toward me, and when she's close, I see that she's trying to say something, but she can't speak. She's gesturing wildly with her hands, and her eyes are wide and panicked, but no sound comes out of her mouth. I try to get closer to her, but I can't walk. No matter how hard I try, I can't seem to move. When I look up, she seems to be fading away. I try to scream, but the sound is trapped in my throat, and she can't hear me. I try to reach out with my arms, but she's too far away, and then she disappears. I wake up and find that my pillow is damp with my tears. I know without a doubt that the woman in my dreams was my birth mother, and I know she was trying to tell me something. Thank you. One of the funny things about children's literature is that so much of it is about growing up. And so much of young adult literature 
involves figuring out who we are, what our identity is, um, what growing up means in the context of our families and communities. And I think something that's so special about these two books is that they bring into that conversation the idea of the ways that the past can inform our understanding of ourselves and who we're going to become. The title of this panel is Flashback. <laughs> and both of these books are structured in a way that really puts the present action, the present moment, the journeys that Eliza, the main character of Don't of after the hurricane, <laughs> and um, Mira, the younger character, the second character, the present day character in Meet Me in Mumbai, the journeys that they're on are so deeply informed by big events in the past. <laughs> right? And that's a structural concern of both of these books. So I'm wondering if you both could talk a little bit about the ways that understanding the past informs who we are as people, informs in particular Eliza and Mira's journeys, understanding themselves and who they want to be. I think for me, it was, um, it's very closely connected to my personal experiences being uh, an immigrant and um, having daughters here who grew up here. And, you know, for them to kind of know their identity and their place in the world, because it's different when you, you know, when you're not from where everyone else is. And I think you don't have that, as an immigrant, you don't have that history with the place and uh, the people. And I think um, when you're young and you're trying to figure out who you are, that's such an important, um, important connection that you need in your life. And Aisha knows where she comes from, even though she, you know, she, she's from India, she has her history with her family, and she's you know, come to the States as a young person, but she knows exactly who she is because she's grown up with people that she's known all her life. Uh, Mira, however, has a very different um, experience because she's adopted, her parents are not Indian, and so for her, when she looks at her family, she doesn't look like them, and it's not just how she feels about it, but it's how everyone keeps continually reminds her that she's she feels a little bit like a misfit, even though you know she has a wonderful relationship with her moms and her her sister. It's just something she can't escape, and so she has this yearning to figure out exactly like like genetically where she's from, almost you know, and then that kind of leads to the more you know deeper questions of her her origins, her roots, the history she has, you know, the the history of being Indian. I think it's, it's something we all long for to know where we come from and where we're going because I feel like for Mira, it's really hard for her to, con to see her future if she can't really figure out you know, what her past was. Because she has these letters from her mother, she knows that there is a story there which is larger than just, oh, you know, my mother gave, you know, placed me for adoption. Um, and so for her, it's really a very, um, essential uh, journey that she has to take to figure out where she comes from. Part of what I'm thinking about memory, I'm thinking about my, myself as a young person, thinking about how memory influenced my own identity or experiences, what, what things happened in your life, what things happened that I couldn't leave alone. You know, I always think of myself as first as a documentarian, as a writer. I was somebody who really was a big journal keeper I, from 13, 14 years old, and I couldn't let things go. <laughs> you know, any, any heartbreak that was happening or any trauma that had happened or anything that felt like I, a, a mistake. I made or issues that were going on in, in my community, I felt like writing for me was a place to process it, to figure it out, to, to navigate, negotiate with myself. And so as a, a teacher too, I, I teach generally middle high school students often writing and we're often thinking about how memory influences everything we do, how those parts of our lives or what we've been through or who, we, uh, who we've met, what, what has happened in our lives are, are ways for us to process now and the future. So I, I, I think about that a lot. And then in particular, this book is really about what happens after these climate disasters. You know, I, I, as I'm watching the news, I mean, I started it very much, uh, my family had a home in Long Beach Island after Hurricane Sandy. I saw the community, be broken down, I saw it being built back up, and I'm watching every news feed that I'm going on to wildfires or flooding, or I think about Eastern Kentucky, which had the massive flooding, or the coast of Florida, Pakistan flooding, like all of these local and then global traumas that have happened, how do 
how do people, especially young people though, who are still growing and forming and they are not fully themselves yet, how are they navigating that kind of disaster? And what does it mean to lose everything you thought you, you thought you had? Or what does it mean to lose your home or to lose family and friends? That part, I think, I most wanted young people to, to just be able to think about what, what are the after effects and what, how do we move forward, but also carry that part of our past or carry that part of us. It's part of your, your body, right? Like, like it feels like you carry it always. And so I wanted characters who, who could do that together too, who could sort of think about their past and figure out how to, how to move forward and still carry it with them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought the word memory <laughs> into the conversation. I think memory is such a strong ingredient in insight, but you also took it to that next place of what are the connections that we have when we have that knowledge to the global, <laughs> right? To these larger catastrophes. How do we see our role in um, our communities, in our families, in our friend communities, in our neighborhoods, and what responsibility do we have to them? After the hurricane, there's some real tensions between the responsibilities that Eliza has in her family and in thinking about global movements around climate change. And in other ways, in Meet Me in Mumbai, we see the knowledge of Mira's past change her perspective entirely on her adoptive parents and the community of Houston and eventually Mumbai itself. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how these characters sort of see themselves in their local you know, family communities, friend communities, the people around them versus what their responsibilities are in the larger landscape. I've been talking about to, with my students and with my kids, my, I, a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old, a lot about what, what we learn, what our teachers tell us, what our, our families tell us. I, I was working with a student recently, a, a graduate student who was writing about family members who half of them are conservative and half of them are liberal. And so it was this idea of how do we navigate this super complicated where emotions are high, we feel very strongly about one side, how do we come together? And so I, 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 I say that because Eliza is also, her family is part of the, of the development. Her father's a, a contractor, her father's working in these, these houses that are going up, and she doesn't want the houses are, are, are a big part of, of the issue or these, these huge developments that are happening on the island. And so she's trying to grapple with this love and affection with, with her family, but also it's not what I want. So how do I... How do I move through the world if my ideas and the way I see myself is different than my parents, is different than my teachers, is different than... So I'm often thinking about how do young people grapple with forming their own identity if they're living in a home with people who do not share their same belief systems. And so I try to root my work in what does community building look like? What does generosity of let's listen, let's be in, in space together. I, I don't wish you harm. You know, I want to what does kindness look like or what is sharing space and saying you might not believe this you know, I believe this how do we move forward is there a common ground we have is there a space that how do I move through I, I, again that word generosity how do I how do I become vulnerable and tender to the people who maybe don't believe the same things I do. Can we still exist together? And so I, I, I'm hoping to do that in my work. I hope to do that as an educator and as a community builder, but that's what I'm thinking about. So what are those conversations? What does it look like we're in the, when we're in the room together? How does it look moving forward? I, I don't have the answers, but I feel like if I move with love and if my characters try to move with love or try to answer things with kindness and love and generosity, then there can be some type of solution, then there could be some type of dialogue. Yeah. So for me, I think I had it again because they're two very different characters um, in very different circumstances. Aisha's, um, these pivotal moments in her life actually happen when she's out, away from her community because she identifies so closely with her Indian Muslim community. She's very conscious of her place in that community when she makes these life-altering decisions. 
uh, it's a very mature um, outlook, that uh, mature situation that she's having to deal with, where you know she's not only um, thinking about herself and you know her unborn child, but she's also thinking of what impact her choices will make on her parents and her younger sisters and her her parents' place in their community. Because just because she's away, she hasn't separated herself, and you know obviously she can't after 17 years. She's not suddenly going to stop identifying with that community. And so it's a very tough decision for her. And she really has to keep in mind the memories of her childhood, the memories of her parents, what they've taught her. And all of those play a very important role in her choices. With Mira, initially when she's growing up, I mean, she's a, she's a young child. It doesn't, I don't think she was thinking of, you know, these things when she was five or 10 years old. But once she finds her uh, birth, the letters from her birth mother, her birth mother's memories become part of who she is because it's something that directly affects her. And she realizes that this person of whom she only always had a very vague kind of a picture, she never really knew much about her beyond the fact that uh, she was a student from India who you know, couldn't keep her and, so, and then went back after she was born. When she reads these letters from her birth mother, she gets a very clear picture of just what her birth mother was going through at the same age that Mira is now. And in her mind, and she can't wrap her head around the fact that at her, that age to have to make these very tough decisions, not just for herself, but also to have to think about you know, the, the family back home. And so once she gets these, she reads these letters, she starts to you long for the a deeper connection, you know, and and so the community that she's living in, you know, where she's grown up and she's comfortable there, but she knows that a, there's a part of her that's missing, and she feels like there's some sort of a hole in her identity, like something missing in her identity, and so she really needs to make a connection with the community that her birth mother belonged to, because, I mean, you can't really run away from that history, like, she, she doesn't feel like she can just kind of separate herself from that history, because she's part of it, and so for her to make that journey to a community where, a community which in, in her eyes, at a certain point, she feels that her birth mother had to make choices because of the community that she grew up in. So there is a certain level of resentment in Mira as well, kind of like it, it was their fault that you know my mom had to leave me behind. And so for her to come to terms with all of that at, at such a young, it's a, it's a very young age, so 17, 18 is a very young age to have to deal with such kind of larger matters. But yeah, so I think in, in her case, these memories, you can't run away from the history of, of your identity, I guess. Sabina, I wonder if you would talk a little more about your experience as a writer writing about adoption, especially intercultural adoption, and what you wanted to offer your readers. I, I had to do a lot of research, obviously, to make sure that you know everything was portrayed correctly. But beyond that, I think it was, what I really wanted to convey is um, how difficult it can be when you come when you know you come from a more conservative background and you fall in love with someone far away from your home and you have the situation now and how difficult it is and how heart-wrenching it was for Aisha to have to navigate this all by herself without letting anybody find out. It was really something that um, I, I can't imagine having to do at 17. And for Mira, you know, being raised by these two wonderful moms who happen to be white, but who have embraced her and, and raised her in this wonderful way. I think I, what I wanted to convey really is, you know, how it, it, it's not, I mean, it's important for, for them to, re I guess they didn't realize that Mira would be missing this big chunk of her life. And so when they did come to the realization, it was a bit hard for them. There's a little bit of, you know, worry that, you know, they might lose their daughter to another family, basically, the family that her, where her roots are. It was a hard journey as a writer to, to kind of, you know, figure out like what emotions she would be going through, both of them, both Aisha and Mira would be going through. And really just to con convey that it's all about love. Like it was, it was the connection that Aisha had with her boyfriend, that Aisha has for her unborn child, that she made this decision 
in her mind at the time, it was the best possible decision for her child, but also for the people who raised her. She tried to make a decision that would be a good decision for everyone in her life. For Mira, not to understand that is also understandable because she, she doesn't know the history until she does. And, and I think that's kind of, you know, for her to have to go back to India to, um, to kind of reconnect with her birth parents was something that I think will um, solidify who she is in her mind. Right, for Mira, it's really this almost, um, this journey that she takes on going to India is such a huge part of her integration of the adoption experience. For Eliza, the trauma of Hurricane Sandy is something that comes up throughout the book and her experience in therapy, her experience wrestling with it is a really active part of the narrative. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit um, again, with an eye toward the, the young reader and what you're, you're offering folks in terms of how we wrestle with trauma and how young people deal with these you know, challenging events that, as you said, seem like they're in the past, but they live in your body. Yeah. Even growing up, I think of, of writing or being in a room with other writers as, I know, I know uh, creative writing and that is not therapy, but it worked for me as a young person before I was in therapy, you know, went to therapy, that it worked as a space for me to figure out where my heart lived or to figure out where my emotions were, or to figure out how to just get through being a teenager or puberty or all the things that come on you nonstop. Even as a young person, that is where I found solace. I mean, I think at 17, I had teachers who were cracking open things for me, who were saying, you can write this down. You, your heart and your emotions can exist on the page. And something about putting it on the page felt like, a, okay, I can, I, can, I can take a step back from it. And so when I was writing a Eliza, I definitely felt like I wanted her to be able to grapple deeply with loss and to grapple with how she was moving through the world after these, these multiple losses and figuring out where where her identity was moving forward. So she is actively in therapy. She has a wonderful therapist in the book. I wanted to absolutely normalize that. I wanted there to be space for young people to say, oh, right, I can go to therapy. Oh, right, I can ask for help. I can, I can rely on my, my community, and then I can rely on some professionals outside of, of, of my family and my friends. So wanting to put that on the page, it was so important for me. And then figuring out, for Eliza, there's there's many things. She's she is is grappling with her love of the ocean. She is on an island community. You know, she is is in that space. But she's figuring out how do I love something that there's also some deep friction with. So she is somebody who surfs. She's somebody who spends all. all she's a lifeguard. So she's spending time on the ocean. But figuring out this ocean is what almost took our community apart. So what is that? How do I love something that could that could end me? What is that kind of, um, that, that push-pull for her? So I wanted her to be able to deal with that in therapy. I wanted her to be able to say, what are the parts of me that I still hold on to and what can I let go? You know, sometimes as young people, we, and I, I say this as, as being a young person, having been a young person, I had this idea of this is who I am and I'm unmoved. I'm not going to change. This is, this is my identity. Then the older I got, the more I could let those parts go, maybe the parts that didn't feed me or the parts that weren't, that, that I didn't need to hold on to. I, I think of Eliza as somebody who's trying to push and trying to hold on to this strength when really she could soften or really she could say, it's okay for me to ask for help. It's okay for me to, to fall for somebody who's not in my same belief system. And how do I have those conversations or how do I take a risk? I'm still who I am or my identity can be shifting and changing. And so I wanted that, that to, to show up in, in the space of the book and to have the friends be grappling with that too. They're all also grappling with but you know, post-traumatic stress, everybody is in it together. And some of them are dealing with it in different ways. And some of them are taking unhealthy risks. I think that's the other thing. Like, how, what, are, what are healthy risks? What are, maybe it's a combination of both. And how do I come out on the other side of it? This making me think about lightness, <laughs> lightness and love. And so I think we've been talking about some heavy stuff, trauma. I, I wonder if you could both talk a little bit about, um, given the intense historical events that your books are orbiting, 9-11, the aftermath for Muslims in the United States, Hurricane Sandy, as we've talked about, right? 
what are the ways that you looked to the past or other strategies? I'm thinking about pop culture and point break references and Bollywood and Gilmore Girls references, right? But I'm sure you have lots of ways that as part of your process, you thought about lightness and levity and laughter and humor and connection with the reader. How did you bring that lightness into your works? Everyday things that happen that are funny, like, you know, and it just, you know, every other day somebody, you know, says something funny, that's something that you come across. And, and also watching kids, like my, my, my daughters are much older, they're not really kids, uh, they're in their 20s, but they come and tell me stories about their interactions, just daily interactions and the weird things people say and do. And I always kind of store them away for, for um, times just like, you know, when I'm writing and uh, wanting to put something, I'm like, ah, oh, that would be so perfect. And just, you know, things that happened to me when I was growing up, the feelings you have, when like there's a scene where Aisha and Suresh are alone for the first time, and, you know, she gets all sweaty and nervous, and she's just, she wants him to kiss her, but she doesn't want to seem desperate, you know? I, I, I had such a great time writing that scene because, you know, we've, a lot of us have been there in that situation where you want something from this other person, but you can't bring yourself to say it. And so it just ends up being really awkward and then you say the wrong thing. And it's, and that doesn't have, doesn't matter what generation you're from. And that's just human nature, right? So, uh, and then with uh, Mira and her best friend, Nikhil, like who's really helping her get in touch with her Indian roots. And then this girl comes along who's like all Indian and, you know, really makes her feel like uh, out, out of place, like makes, actually goes out of her way to make her, make her feel out of place. And so, you know, it was fun to write like that character, which is not a main character, but really has an impact, I think. Like it was just, I, in, I really enjoyed writing her. Leaning into the mean girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so those are really fun things that you can kind of introduce in, you know, even, even if it's a, a story with heavier themes and, and topics, it's still possible to fill them with like just everyday things because you're not in that trauma every minute of the book, right? So um, life still goes on. I mean, even when we are dealing with trauma and tragedy and disaster, people still fall in love, people still feel jealous, people still, you know, build new friendships. That's just human nature and it's a good thing because otherwise we'd just collapse, right, under the weight of all the awful things that are happening. So. Yeah, so I think it's, I, I really, I, I think it's a really important thing for me to inject uh, as much levity as I can, because my, all my books have dealt with pretty kind of heavier um, topics, so, you know, I don't want just, I don't want to come out of reading a book feeling just really depressed and sad, um, you know, because life is about more than that, so. That's so beautiful. Yeah, I love, I love everything you said. I, I feel like this idea that, and I, I haven't gotten to say this, but the, the idea that the, the main trauma is, is the climate change, right? That's our main trauma. But then when you add uh, racism and classism, like where are the multiple traumas intersecting? And so I think often about that with, with all the multiple things we're, we're grappling with, right? What, what's happening to, to human beings and, and all those layers that affect people differently and how you move through the world? I, I think about that deeply and think about what are those antidotes to that? What's, what, how do you activate joy and celebration? And that yes, all those things are happening, but people do fall in love. They are, I love you said jealous and there's heartbreak and there's all the things that you are moving, we're, we're all moving through the world and still reading the news and seeing the horrors of the world or what's happening. So how do you, how do you use the, the activation of, of dance parties and how do you use and laughter and and just figuring out how do I how do I remain open hearted and what does that look like I have to tell this story about my I have a, the 12 year old has just started to talk about uh, crushes and things and we we were on a we went to a Halloween parade and and she saw this crush across the street and we ended up crossing and she was like oh my god mom can you cross the street and just the, the panic that set in and I was like okay well, do you want to go do you want to, should I go say hi and she was like oh my god why would you think that I want you to go say hi? Like, I just was not the best in my, that moment. And I, I, I was telling my partner, I said, I could see my whole self in her, everything she was doing. I was like, oh my gosh, it's awkward and, and full of hope and laughter. And we were getting, and of course, my nine-year-old was like, let's go get the candy. I don't have time for this. But 
it, it, you could see all the run of emotions and the freshness of first love. I think that's why I love to write about first love because there's that first kiss when you don't know what you're doing or what's gonna happen or who's gonna say, yeah, are we gonna make the wrong move? I love that. My, you know, my students, we were talking about all, you know, some very deep, hard things. And I remember them saying, yeah, we have to talk about this. And then we have to go find our locker and get our books and then and go take the subway and go get a slice of pizza and then see our crush across the street and be like super awkward and embarrassing in front of our friends and family. All those things, those multiple ways that we interact in, in the world, those exist at the same time. And so I often think about what are those things in a day that make you, there's like a focusing on, on the, the, the celebratory or the divine. Like how do I focus my attention a little bit on that? And how do I um, gather people to, to, oh, and I would say food. I, and another big part of, I feel like all my books, uh, I grew up in Kentucky in the South where they were making lunch, they were cooking lunch. It wasn't just packaged, like we would race each other. I had friends that were really amazing friends and so, Part of food was conversation and celebration and ways to just love each other and food in that moment. So I think about parties and gatherings and I think that's how I, I wanna root my life in figuring out how do, we, how do we celebrate, how do we gather in as many ways as possible. Yeah, that's something I really loved about both of your books is that they were so infused with food, <laughs> with family, with community, with, um, I would say presence in, in, in that sense of being in the moment-ness, right? Which is something that we often strive for through as a way of dealing with trauma, as a way of dealing with hard things. But also I think that's an experience that your books give the reader to be able to immerse and be able to feel totally present in the experiences of these different characters on Long Beach Island, in Mumbai, in Houston, right? <laughs> in their living rooms. Um, and, and really feel like you can sort of transport yourself and understand something in a new way. And so the last question that I wanted to ask before we turn it over to the readers has to, it's sort of building on what you both were just talking about. I've heard it said that, um, while adult and children's literature can both grapple with very, very hard things, trauma, et cetera, one of the main differences is that children's literature is really infused with hope. And it really offers the reader hope as a takeaway. And we could have a whole conversation about what hope is or what it looks like. But I wondered if you could both continue what you were just talking about with an eye towards what you're giving the reader, the youth reader reading your books, how we go from the paralysis of knowledge toward action, towards meaning, towards presence? Um, I think one of the biggest themes or topics in this book for me was just to be realistic. Uh, real, real teens sometimes have sex and sometimes get pregnant and often have to face uh, you know, difficult decisions. But I think for me, the main thing was for, for Aisha was that she had options. And unfortunately, after the book, like after I had completed the book, that all changed drastically, and it was heartbreaking. But I'm so happy that while I was writing the book, I still had this in me that this is our world where we, in in this country, we still have choices. For Aisha to go through this very difficult decision um, was already heartbreaking. But the fact that she at least had choices, she could figure out what was the best thing for her to do. And I really wanted to infuse this, uh, her story with the hope that, you know, you'll, there's always a choice and that, you know, it, it has to work for you. It has to work for, that, for each individual, whatever decisions they make. It's, it's something we don't talk about a lot, unfortunately, and I think it's, it is something important are the conversations of, of what's happening to teens who find themselves in this situation. And, and also just, you know, her religious background, her community, um, and, and you know, just to, something for me that was really important is people often, you know, have, like in, in my years of living in North America, people have often um, expressed how sad it is that, you know, women from my community are oppressed or don't have the same choices. And I kind of find it ironic because when I was writing the story, I mean, the you know, the characters are in North America and people have those same, issues here, those same, you know, lack of choices now. And so it's, it might look different outwardly or, you know, but, but when you really dig deeper, it's the same thing. You know, women should have 
control over their own bodies and be able to decide for themselves what is best for them. And I, I really, I, I think in all my books, I really try to sort of dispel that notion that any one community, any particular community is more conservative than another in, a, in, in an oppressive way, because that's really not true when you really kind of, you know, analyze it. It's, it's, it's not true, there are pockets of, of this in every community. And I think it's important as readers and for young people especially to really understand that like no culture is a monolith, that you know, there are you know, good and bad and difficulties um, and joyous things in every, every culture and every community. So I think that was something I really, really wanted to convey in, in, this, um, in all my stories really. I have seen so many young people activating in their own worlds. I think that's part, part of the hope. So I don't know for me if it's just this in YA, but I was seeing so, you know, even Watch Us Rise that I wrote with Renee Watson, we were teaching artists together for a decade plus. So we were in schools all around New York City and seeing young people who, if they had issues, they were changing the issues. If they weren't reading diverse, if their curriculum wasn't diverse, they were like, yeah, no, we're gonna need to diversify this. And they were bringing it to the teachers, bringing it to the principals, the administrators. They were not sitting back. It was, it was a real, you know, and Renee and I were both from also growing up and being kind of trying to activate as young people and figuring out what, how, activating something gives hope. My kids go to a public school called the Washington Heights Expeditionary Learning School. It's in Washington Heights in New York City. And the young people created this clean air green corridor, which is a, a corridor that connects through elementary, middle, high schools. They're working, they're going to City Hall. They're working with the, the, you know, the local politicians to make this a clear space to be having more plants, less cars, art space for young people. They are, are making these huge moves that I'm always sitting back and going, oh, oh dang, I need to, I, okay, I need to watch you all as guides for how I need to, to keep existing in the world. And I think the young people I'm seeing are showing hope in all kinds of amazing ways. So I think that's what I wanted. I, I wanted these young people to be working together. What I'm seeing in the classrooms, what I'm seeing in schools, all, you know, and I work also internationally. So I'm seeing young people come together globally to have these conversations. When I started to see all of the young act, global activists and the climate activists, I was like, oh, these young people also have their own nonprofits. They're connecting with other people around the world. They're not waiting. I, I think that's the hope that I, I wanted to have exist in this book too, that, that I'm so inspired by and moved by the work that young activists are doing too. That's the perfect transition to a Q&A. We've got a lot of young people here in the audience, and so it'd be wonderful to hear from some of you. What's on your minds? What would you like to ask Ellen and Sabina? Hi there, um, my name is Sahara. Um, I had a question for Sabina specifically. Um, I was curious kind of what your inspiration was um, for the character of Mira and kind of the um, the struggle that she has of kind of imposter syndrome and trying to like reconnect with a culture that maybe she wants to be more connected with and is kind of on that journey of doing. Yeah. Aisha's story was really uh, something, a little bit of a personal experience for me as far as, you know, being in a, diff in a new place, um, leaving my home and my family to venture out. And like, I came to the States to get my, my, my college degree and it was really hard and I didn't expect it to be so hard. I didn't expect to feel so lonely, even though I was surrounded by people. Like I lived in the dorms, there's constant activity, but it's so weird how you can feel totally alone even when you're surrounded by people. And it's because none of those people know, knew my history, where I came from, they don't know anything about me. And my history was so different from what theirs was because we grew up in completely different cultures and environments. And so that was a lot of what Aisha was going through, you know, feeling so lonely. And the other parallel is I met my husband also when I was in college and I think we were both looking for this connection to home. So it was a very um, strong connection. And my husband is also from a different religious community, just like Suresh is um, from Aisha's. And so when we were getting married, we faced a lot of resistance from our families, a lot of opposition from our families and our communities. And so I kind of, when I, I, when I went 
you know, I went back in my head thinking of how I was feeling in those days, being scared, you know, we got married against our family's wishes, um, I got pregnant, and how in my head I was thinking, uh, what if I had been in that situation where, you know, I, was, I suddenly found myself alone, what would have happened and how frightening that could be. Because even though I wasn't alone, it was still frightening because I didn't, we didn't have the support of our families. And that can make a real difference. I mean, it's, it's scary enough to, you know, to go through, the, to have these uh, big life, you know, milestones, but to do it all alone and knowing that nobody's rooting for you, that's, that was the part that, you know, I was thinking, how would she feel knowing that she's letting down her family by her relationship and how she's going to deal with that and how she can live with herself? With Mira's part, it was more a reflection of what my daughters, like they've grown up here and, you know, they've visited India briefly, but they don't know what it's like to live there. I mean, they'll, they'll, they eat Indian food. They, you know, we're, my husband and I are both Indian. I mean, I'm Bangladeshi, but we're both South Asian. And so just watching them navigate, you know, through their journeys, it's very interesting to me to think of when we took them back for vacation, it was interesting for me to watch them. You know, their skin color looks like, they, they totally blend in with the people outwardly, but just their body language, the way they talk, Everything is so different, like it marks them as outsiders and, and how that might make someone feel, if my, how, how they would feel if they were growing up in a, in a family where you know, the rest of the members were not South Asian and how that would affect their sense of self and you know, how sometimes you feel like you're not enough of anything you know, and how that can actually be, I don't want to say damaging, but it can be frustrating, and uh, because you're you're kind of you feel like you're not fulfilling either side of your um, you know requirements, <laughs> and like you mentioned, Mira has this imposter syndrome. That's that's such a great uh, way to describe it, because that's how she feels. She feels like she's a fake Indian kind of you know, and especially when she finds this friend and he starts introducing her, like she never she's never eaten the kind of food that you know he's grown up eating. And she feels this very strongly when this other girl comes into their lives who is very Indian um, and, and really kind of rubs it in. And she feels so like left out. It's the language, the food, the, the just knowing the culture, the music, the dance, everything, you know? And so, and it, it can make a person feel very kind of shaky. It shakes your confidence in yourself, right? So, and at, at 17, that's a big deal. That was Ellen Hagen, author of Don't Call Me a Hurricane, and Sabina Khan, author of Meet Me in Mumbai. Many of the events you hear on the Archive Project are recorded at our annual series, Portland Arts and Lectures. The 2023-24 season has just been announced and will feature Zadie Smith, Mary Beard, David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nezakumatatil. To learn more about the season and how to join us at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings in downtown Portland, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>